0: While we're normally all about the ongoing conversation about the resolutions in the World of High School debate, of course, it's summer, and we don't have any particular resolutions that we're currently working on. Of course, if you've been a regular listener, you know that we at Thales are getting ready for the Coolidge Cup tournament, but it's going to be a couple months before we have any new resolutions. So I'm off uh, for the summer traveling, and uh, one of my trips has been to Clarkston, Georgia, And I've spent the last week uh, with international refugees and their children as part of Camp Encounter here in Clarkston, Georgia. Uh, I've learned that Clarkston is referred to as, quote, the most diverse square mile in America, with uh, refugees from literally all over the world. In the last three days, I've met children from South Sudan, from Eritrea, from Burma, from Israel, from literally all around the globe. Some of them are here uh, with incredibly tragic stories. Some of them are here for reasons that they may or may not be able to articulate. But all of them are from somewhere else, and they're now settled here in Clarkston, Georgia. And as part of that, I've also uh, gotten to meet uh, Josh Davis, uh, the executive director of an organization called Proskaneo. And he's got a very interesting take on international refugees, and they're a big part of his ministry. So on this episode, we're going to be discussing his work and his organization and uh, what exactly we ought to know about international refugees and what that has to do with the church. Josh, welcome to What's the Reds.
1: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be with you.
0: So help us with this funny word. I suspect most of our listeners don't know Greek. They probably don't know Proscaneo. so help us with what that is exactly.
1: Exactly, yeah. Proskaneo is the Greek word for worship. So if you were to read the New Testament of the Bible and see the word worship in English, every time you see it in English, most likely it goes back to that Greek word Proskaneo. We chose that as a title for our ministry about 18 years ago, because we work with so many different people from all over the globe, primarily Christians, who are worshiping God and finding ways to worship God together. And we can go back to the New Testament and kind of have that common, uncommon ground of Greek. Uh, we didn't want our name to be in English because we work with so many different languages. So do, do people from
0: other, uh, other countries, other backgrounds, would they find it to be uh, less welcoming if your organization was named in English?
1: Not necessarily, but we just didn't want that kind of domination of one language over another. Um, English can be a dominant language all throughout the world, so we try to encourage uh, local languages and um, picking something like Greek that's a little obscure is a way for us to highlight that, I think. Oh,
0: That's fantastic. I, I for one, have very much appreciated uh, your leadership at, at Camp Encounter this week. I I don't entirely know which languages we've been singing in, but <laughs> I think there was a song you led us in on Monday that had at least three, maybe four languages. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we write songs all the time here in our community that have all these different languages, um, partly because people like me who grew up in one place and then moved to another place have two languages inside them already. Um, most of the refugees who live here speak at least two languages. Many of them speak three, four, five, six languages. So when they come to write a song, they want to bring all of those languages with them. And so rather than saying, well, this song should be in only one language, we say, why Why does that have to be the case? Let's write something that uses more than one language.
0: That's fascinating. So really, the, the songwriting becomes a way to draw on these various parts of people's backgrounds and kind of bring them all together.
1: Exactly, and allow for them to express more fully who they are rather than to have to compartmentalize or to check part of their culture or identity at the door.
0: So part of your ministry then is is not asking people to necessarily, well, now that you're in America, you have to somehow submit to the dominant culture, but rather helping to find ways to preserve their own culture in the midst of this new country.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's really a both-and approach. Um, we believe that it's, it's going to be helpful to them to be able to have a good working language uh, grasp of English. But... Um, The language that they grew up with is the language of their hearts, and so they're most likely going to be able to express their deepest emotions and their deepest ideas in their heart language. So, of course, we want to bring that in to worship God, right? So we don't want somebody to always have to be translating in their head when they're worshiping God, but to just be able to speak freely and to sing freely.
0: That's fascinating. I know we, we were talking earlier, and you uh, used the word multiculturalism in a way that struck me as very interesting. It's, I think most of the time I hear multicultural. I hear it from someone who's usually pretty secular, and they're usually on the left end of politics, and mm-hmm. they're wanting to create a, uh, a more multicultural world is usually the phrase, and... I, I, at least when I hear that, I get pictures of kind of the flags of the world and the United Nations with all those flags lined up in a semicircle. Sure. What, what do you mean by multicultural, and is there a way in which Christianity really is a multicultural faith?
1: Yeah. Actually, for me, it's the picture that we see in Revelation chapter 5 and 7 that informs so much of what we do. John gets this glimpse In Revelation, of people from every tribe and language and nation gathered around the throne of Jesus worshiping, right? And they're all in the same place at the same time. So clearly you could call that a multicultural gathering of people. And uh, one day as I was reading that passage in Revelation, I remembered the prayer that I had been taught to pray when I was little, that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm. And I just realized, man, so many times here on earth we're segregated, even in the church, we're segregated by language and culture where we see this glimpse in heaven of everyone together worshiping Jesus at the same time in the same place. Why couldn't that happen here on earth? And so I spent the last 18 years of my life trying to see that happen in little and big ways.
0: Is that something that churches tend to naturally welcome or, or naturally move towards, or does it does it take intentional effort to kind of break out of the the way we've always done things? Or what what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I realize that's a very broad question. Sure, so make it yeah. what
1: you will. I think what I find most often is that churches would say, "Well, anyone is welcome," right? But they don't think about what message they're sending that would maybe be pushing people away. Um, and they're not necessarily willing to, to make the changes to the way that we've always done things in order to be welcoming to somebody whose first language is in English. Um, like I said before, if I um, don't speak English fluently and I walk into your church, everything's in English. I'm working really hard the whole hour, or hour and a half that I'm sitting there just translating everything in my head, um, and a lot of people just don't realize that. Unless you've had the experience of going to another country and sitting through a worship service in a language you don't understand, you don't realize how challenging that really is. Um, so part of it is raising awareness. Um, and then once a church leadership says, yeah, we're willing to try this, there's got to be some real creativity because no one's ever seen this done exactly that way before. You know, Depending on the church's context and the languages and cultures that are around it, it's going to look different in that church than it would in a church down the road or down the next town over. Um, so there's got to be some creativity involved, um, and then at the end of things, there's got to be a shared leadership and a sharing of power, and that's where I find that we have the most trouble is when I have to give up some power so that someone else could have power as well.
0: well that is just fascinating because you're you're talking about these things that I mean, especially the when we bring into issues of power. I mean, the, that, that's another term that I hear a lot, and I tend to associate with left-wing scholarship. Sure. They have a lot of concerns about feminine power or uh, some uh, sexual minority group gaining more power or something. Sure. But you're using that in a very biblical sense to really look at the way power is shared amongst the people who are worshiping together.
1: Right, yeah. And who makes the decisions? and. Whose songs do we sing? And, I mean, we we have those power struggles in the church. Even among one culture, we can see um, power struggles between one generation and another generation, Mm -hmm. right? And some of the things that have caused what we would call the worship wars in churches are the same things that keep... Uh, people from different countries and cultures out of our churches.
0: Now is is there, in your work, do you see any kind of natural drive from people of one culture to want to maintain the traditional practices of their culture within the majority culture?
1: Yeah, you know, it's challenging because um, for a lot of immigrants, they're working all day long in American culture. And church could be that one chance of the week that they could actually hear just their own language and they could mm. be with just their own people. So it can be really challenging for someone from an immigrant background to even want to worship in a multicultural environment because Sunday is that precious time where I can just not have to speak English for a few hours and be with people that think like I do. Um, but when they catch a bigger glimpse of what the church is, mm. they realize, man, we, we were called not to be separate but equal, but together and equal. And... Um, that there's a lot of power in that.
0: That's that's a fascinating vision. I, I hadn't really thought about the way that this is not just necessarily like Americans kind of changing what they're doing. It also that's a bit of a sacrifice from folks who have. I, I know this. Uh, this past Sunday, I got to attend the uh, Swahili service okay. Sunday afternoon, and I I resonate with you said a moment ago that experience of being of just having to mentally translate. They were gracious and had someone translate the sermon for okay. us, but they were about an hour to maybe two hours worth of material where there was no translation, right. I was completely lost. Yeah. And I just, it helped me be ho- hopefully in the future, but certainly now be a lot more sympathetic to people who are arriving. And I, I can very much understand the desire to be back with my people who have my shared cultural background and I'm not always working to, be understood in the majority language and culture.
1: Right. But unfortunately, that only works for about a generation because once they start having children who are born here in the United mm-hmm. States, a lot of times the kids aren't fluent in their parents' language.
0: I've wondered that this week yeah. I've seen so many of the children of these refugees and their, their English is great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's their first language. Um, maybe they were even born in another country, but if they move here early enough, they pick up English as their main language. And um, when that's the case, then they're actually lost in their parents' worship services. So unless parents are willing mm-hmm. at some point to say, well, we should at least be bilingual in our church then families are are fracturing and having a hard time worshiping together
0: so this really is necessary for churches to and church leadership within that that cultural group to acquire that larger vision you're describing for the survival of their own community
1: right i think it is and then the bigger picture for me is what jesus prayed in john chapter 17 which he prayed for all of us as believers in jesus to be one in the same way that he's one with the father so that the world would know that jesus is who he says he is and for me that's the biggest motivation um that we would be one across cultural and language and generational barriers so that the world would know that jesus is who he says he is
0: oh that's amazing well help us a little bit with why your focus is on the music on music on dance on uh, i think you've used the term worship arts this week Mm -hmm. why why that area i mean it doesn't Unless you're also focused on kind of interlingual preaching, and I haven't heard about that part. Is that that also part of Proscaneo's We do teach
1: about that as well um, and help preachers figure out how to not only preach in one language or from one cultural perspective, but to be broader than that. Uh, But primarily we focus on the the worship arts, um, music, dance, visual art. Um, Part of that is just because that's who I am. I grew up playing music since I was four. My grandmother gave me my first violin. and um, I majored in music in college. So part of it is that. And then part of it is the power that we've seen in the arts to cross cultures Mm. um, and even to sometimes seemingly transcend culture. Um, A lot of times your artists in a community are... Um, on the margins of the community, but they're able to affect the community even though they're on the margins. And because they're on the margins, if you were to imagine two circles, one circle being, let's say, American culture and another circle right next to it being, let's say, um, Burmese culture. Sure. Um, the artists are going to be on the margin, the edges of those circles, so the artists are actually closer to one another than the people in the core of the cultures. And so we find that artists have a uh, an easier time crossing cultures and forging relationships cross-culture and then they can be bridges for the people who are more in the core of each culture so there's some strategy to it as well i think
0: oh that's fascinating i've I've certainly loved watching uh I, i think you were the uh the, the only person who at least outwardly looks American that I've seen this week who is uh, very good at dancing. Uh, all the other white guys are up there with no <laughs> sense of rhythm, and I certainly count myself At in least there they're even... trying, right? <laughs>
1: That's true. I've loved watching it.
0: Oh, I got a great video of uh, one of our pastors today trying to dance, and it was, it was gold. I mean, it's so good. Um now, I've learned this week a lot about the international refugee crisis, and it's not something I knew very much about before coming. Um, the number I've heard is 67 million people displaced globally, mm. and that those are for a variety of different circumstances, reasons, um, that, that's Syria, that's Somalia, that's Afghanistan, Iraq, That that's a lot of places and a lot of different things. Um could you give us just kind of your perspective on uh, international refugees and just what, what do they go through and in, in, uh, in before they arrive here? And what are some, what are some of the needs of that, that unique circumstance?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, just from my own vantage point, I've been here in this community um, living with my family for the last six years Um, and then working here in this community yeah, Yeah. Um, for longer than that. And this community has been resettled by refugees since the early 90s. Wherever there was trauma in the world, this community would receive a wave of people from that place. And so um, there's a lot of stories, right? And everybody's story is individual and unique. But some of the things that I've realized, number one... um, My refugee friends are extremely resilient people. Mm. They've been through so much and they've had to start over, start their lives completely over at 25 years old or 40 years old or some 60, 70 years old. Wow. They're starting from scratch, right? With no relationships, with no um, social capital, with no money in the bank, no job skills in the new country, all of those things are starting from scratch and they're amazingly resilient. Um, I'm constantly challenged and encouraged by them in that way. Um, They've gone through a large vetting process actually to get here. A lot of people are afraid, you know, of refugees because they don't know. First of all, they probably never met one. Second of all, they don't realize they go through a lot of vetting before they come. Um, And so that's been something that I've realized throughout this process. It's actually very difficult for them to get Out and to come here to the United States I have a lot of friends who are refugees and they're stuck in a refugee camp Mm. Um, on the border of Thailand and Burma for example is a camp I've been to a couple of times and they really have very little hope of ever leaving that camp they're not allowed to be citizens in Thailand because they're from Burma originally but the Burmese government is persecuting them as an ethnic minority so they really have no place to be or to go um, except for this camp this little camp Um, so it's hard. It's hard for them to even get here. Um,
0: that, that vetting process, is that run through the United Nations?
1: I believe so. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not an expert on that, but um, there are a lot of steps in that process awesome. um, that they have to get through successfully in order to be here. Um, and, you know, a lo- most of them have suffered deep personal loss that's mm-hmm. been out of their control, right? Right. Um, Uh, Some friends of mine were born in uh, Bhutan. They're ethnically Nepali, um, but the Bhutanese government, when it came to power, said anyone who's ethnically Nepali has to be out of the country by this date or we will kill you. And they had to leave. They had to leave their homes, their businesses, everything that they had worked for for 10, 15, 20 years, um, had to leave it behind, and then they had to flee to Nepal where they weren't recognized as citizens. They weren't allowed to work. They weren't allowed to go to school. Um, they've had deep personal loss, and so for me, one of the things we love to do is use the arts to give them a chance to work through some of that and to express some of the, hmm. the grief that they've been through, um, to tell their stories in creative ways through drawing, through painting, through songwriting, um, and to find healing in that process.
0: Wow, that's that's kind of that that that's amazing. It's it's hard for me to fathom. I mean, I've, I've spent the week working with the children. I know you've obviously spent plenty of time with their parents. Yeah. Over the years, but it's just it's hard for me to fathom that these kids who look like they could be really any kids anywhere right. are coming out of these horrific circumstances. Right. And I love that word resilience. That seems like a great word for these folks who've gone through such hardship.
1: Yeah, you know, a funny story, funny from my perspective, but also sad at the same time. So here in Clarkston, we have um, a Christmas celebration at the local uh, city hall, and they set off fireworks. Some of my friends who are refugees from the Congo called me and they said they heard bombs. And did that mean that they, we needed to leave the town and find a safe place? Because that was their history. Anytime there was sounds like that, they had to pick up from wherever they were, leave everything and move on to the jungle or move to the bush or move to the next town. Um, and so the fireworks, you know, spurred them to think that way. And and we just think as an American, like this was a celebratory thing. But for them, it conjured up all of this history of pain and trauma. Oh, my goodness. Yeah.
0: Well, let me ask you this then. I know, um, and I'm in a Southern Baptist church. I think we're. I'd like to think that we fit Mark Dever's nine marks of a healthy church mm-hmm. very, very effectively as a church. But as a as a denomination, the Southern Baptist Church has a history of, uh, of racial issues in sure. its past, and certainly, I think we've been moving in a very positive direction in recent years. But one of the ongoing issues we have as a denomination uh, is is really uh, sometimes struggling with how do we handle. Uh, the, the geographic movement of different ethnicities. Mm-hmm. Is the kind of movement that you're describing and that you, you live in the midst of, is this an opportunity for churches or is this something they should fear? What, what are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, you know, I read Acts chapter 17 um, very literally where it says that God ordains the exact places where people live. And I don't think God is surprised at all by this global migration. I believe God is sovereign and and somehow at work in all of this process, um, I do think it's an opportunity. You know, we, we've spent thousands and millions of dollars sending short-term teams overseas, sending missionaries overseas to reach some of the very nations and cultures that are right here in my town. Mm. Um, and here in my town, we don't have to worry about um, the government's laws that might be anti-christian or whatever that might be. We have freedom here to be able to share freely about Jesus and what he's done for us. Um, so I do think it's a huge opportunity um, for the gospel. And I think it's a huge opportunity for us to learn how to love our neighbors when our neighbors don't look like us or don't think like us.
0: I'd oh, that, that that's a great thought. Um, now, I know you, you mentioned your own background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how, how did you get involved or interested in this kind of intercultural, multicultural kind of ministry?
1: Yeah. Um, when I was 13 years old, my parents decided to become missionaries. Um, they didn't ask me, by the way, whether that was okay with me. <laughs> and I thought it was the worst thing that had ever happened, really, to, to leave the U.S., to leave all my friends and family, to go to this place called the Dominican Republic, which I never even heard of and didn't know anybody there. And, um... Anyway, long story short, I actually learned so much about God and about worship in the Dominican Republic, learning under Dominican leaders and um, learning how to praise God in the Dominican way. I learned Spanish, speak Spanish fluently, and it became a heart language for me. And so I, I love to worship God that way. So then I came back to the United States and I realized, man, every Sunday I had to choose Was I going to be American when I went to worship, or was I going to be Dominican when I went to worship? Because there was no place I could be both of those in the same context, right? There was no place I knew of where I could speak both English and Spanish in the worship service. No place I could be both of those things that were inside of me. And I realized in that moment that the body of Christ was going through that kind of conflict, inner conflict on a daily basis, weekly basis, because we segregate along the lines of race and culture. Um, And that's really what got me into this whole thing. Um, It was that inner conflict that I felt. Am I Dominican? Am I American? Do I really have to choose? Or has God written my story in such a way that I'm actually both? And it's good that I'm both. Hmm. Um, And that's the message I tell our kids here who mom and dad are from Sudan and they've grown up in the United States and they kind of feel like they're caught in the middle. No, you get to be both. You get to be a bridge like the Apostle Paul who knew how to leverage both of his cultural identities, when the time was right for the gospel's sake, so.
0: And neither of those cultural identities are exclusive of the other.
1: Right, yeah. So many times we look at them as if they were, you know. Because we have this one is right, one is wrong mentality, like somebody's gotta be right, that means somebody's gotta be wrong. But so much of culture is just different ways of looking at things. I think each culture has things that honor God, that are directly in line with God's truth and God's word. Each culture has things that are against God, that are against God's ways and his truth and his word. But then there's a lot of stuff in the middle that's just like, you know, do we, do we have a three-hour worship service or a 45-minute worship service? Nothing in the Bible says one way or the other. It's just a cultural issue.
0: Well, I think this is going to become an increasingly significant issue for, for the United States. I mean, as uh, the, the global conflicts that have resulted in 67 million uh, international refugees, those those are not those don't show any signs of stopping anytime right. soon. And I know for, uh, for one of the uh, normal purposes of this podcast is we discuss resolutions from the National Speech and Debate Association. Hmm. One of the ones that will probably be a big deal next year is dealing with international climate refugees. Hmm. Because as climate change occurs, assuming for whatever reason climate change is occurring, but sure. if, if climate change does in fact occur at a, in a substantial way, as millions of coastal residents whose homes will literally no longer exist, and right. they will need somewhere to live. So I think what you presented to us today is a, is a vital message for, I mean, certainly for all of Americans to hopefully have a broader perspective of international cultures, but certainly for churches to look at changing uh, ethnic populations of their cities, not as any kind of threat, but as an amazing opportunity for the gospel yeah. right there at their doorstep.
1: Yeah, and hopefully we'll see it bring us closer and closer to eternity and what God has planned for us.
0: Hopefully so. I, I, I think one of the things I was thinking about as we, we discussed this a little bit this morning, it seems to me that secular multiculturalism is a very flat sort of idea where The idea of being really multicultural means you have to almost step outside of any culture and then consider every culture to be exactly equal and respected without having any actual ownership of any one, but the kind of cultural perspective you've been advocating really appreciates the uniquenesses of each one and appreciates the way each culture has habits and methods of worship that are of great value. And somehow we're all harmed if we flatten all those distinctions down to uh, Southern Gospel or the Southern Baptist hymnal or something of that nature.
1: Yeah, there's another passage later on in Revelation that says that the kings of the earth will bring the glory of the nations into the new Jerusalem. And that's really what I picture on a Sunday morning um, for our churches is how can we bring the glory and the honor, the beautiful things of each of our cultures to god in worship and how can we honor him with what he has given to us
0: it's a beautiful beautiful picture uh well where where can people find you and your ministry online and how can they support your work
1: yeah well you can find us online at proskuneo.org it's p-r-o-s-k-u-n-e-o.org also find us on facebook proskuneo ministries find out what's going on with us there um and we're always looking for people who are willing to come and intern with us or volunteer with us. We're, we have seven different teams that are joining us to run camp this summer. Um, and then there are ways to scholarship students. We've got a School of the Arts that happens here in Clarkston all year round. So there are ways to scholarship students if you want to invest in the life of some of the students that are here uh, that we get to work with that are pretty amazing people.
0: And all of those are available on your website? You I can assume. find all of
1: that on Excellent. our website.
0: Well, Josh, thank you so much for giving us a few minutes of your time this afternoon. and Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us for a uh, special episode of What's the Res. I know this is a little bit out of our normal orbit of debate commentary and uh, uh, pressing current political issues, but I do think this episode uh, fits as one of our broader uh, ways of considering important concerns and being aware of them. So, uh, if you like what you've heard this episode, please head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that by sending us an email at whatstherez at gmail.com. You can also check out our website where we'll eventually have the show notes posted along with the uh, Proscaneo link, which will also be in the show description. Uh, that website is www.whatstherez.com. If you want to follow us on Facebook or, inst- or Instagram, that's at, uh, at whatstherez underscore. You can also find us on Facebook at the What's The Res page. And if you're listening to this in the last week of June... In 2019. Do keep an eye out for our upcoming uh, big announcements the first week of July. Also, I should mention for anybody who does is uh, listening to this in the next uh, six days, on June 26th, we are going to be trying out a new experiment where we're going to have a live debate over Castbox's new platform called Livecast. Be sure to follow us for the link and all the information about how you can tune in, where uh, two high school students will be debating the resolution resolved. On balance, President Trump has been an effective president in his first term. So be sure to tune in at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on June 26th for that information. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for making it through all of those uh, random bits of information at the conclusion. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek truth.